Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. We decided to share a few previous episodes of Fraudology from 2022 that you might have missed or that are now topics that I still get asked about. Today's episode replay is one of my favorite solo episodes that I did this last year. It's also one that I've had quoted back to me by several people who listened to it. Wow, I can't believe that this and this, or I used that example you gave about how one company quantified this and applied it to our company, and it helped me be able to explain things better to leadership about the impact of fraud, that kind of thing. It's also an episode I find myself referencing fairly often because it's one of the few where I could provide some metrics and case studies while still keeping the merchants anonymous. We often talk about ways to demonstrate or explain the value of fraud prevention and or the impact of not preventing fraud, both to our leadership as well as other areas of the business. And we kind of all know the talking points on chargebacks, right? That for every $1 of fraud, it costs the company $3.16. That's from the LexisNexis True Cost of Fraud Survey most recently. There are a few different variations on that. It's around $3 for everyone, but they break it down by digital goods and physical, et cetera. But I just use the general $3.16. But it can be harder to quantify lost dollars due to customers leaving or losing trust in your website or brand. And especially as account takeovers continue to impact a lot of businesses, it can be really hard to explain to the business why you might need to add a little bit of friction and why it shouldn't be an F word, why upfront friction or step-up verification or multi-factor authentication or other pieces at the login, why they're so important and why it may not actually lose customers, you might gain them. Within this episode, and thanks to some great opportunities I had this last year to host a roundtable, I call roundtables actually for two solution provider clients of mine, I got to provide some real world examples of how two large marketplaces have started to quantify these hard to quantify metrics and the lessons that they've learned when earning customer trust, both ways and reasons to prevent account takeovers and to put resources in play to do that, as well as what to do when there is an account takeover attack and how to best communicate that with your customers without losing more revenue. So it's a really good topic. I, if you didn't listen to it before, I hope you do now. If you listened to it before, if you're listening to it again, you'll learn something new or remember something different because it's been several months. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do, and I hope that you are having a good rest of the year. If you just finished listening to my conversation with Nate Carl on this Tuesday, I hope you enjoyed that even half as much as I did. It's so fun to nerd out, so to speak, or just have a conversation with someone who sees the industry from a similar perspective as I do, where we've both been on the front lines, but we also now are at a 10,000 foot view and can start to see more themes than people who are just in, in the trees, so to speak. We're looking at the forest as well, but we're very familiar with what the trees look like using that metaphor of seeing the forest through the trees. You know, I think it, that was fun as well as just some of the realities that are unknown if you've never been on that frontline level of fraud fighting, just, you know, as simple as it can seem to just put a quick API 
connection into a company and, oh, it will only take four hours of developer resources, et cetera. There's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes before that's even prioritized. And a lot of, from what I know so far of people that have listened to that episode, they have said that it was very relatable and in some ways therapeutic, but also insightful because not only did not complain, but critique the realities of getting engineering resources, getting buy-in, et cetera, for new technology or implementing uh, new ways of using that same technology. Nate was able to provide a lot of good tips on if you're having these issues, some of the things that you can do that was helpful for him when he was at eBay. And because he's been both at the merchant and the vendor level, he has that perspective that has helped inform Spectrust's business model, allowing merchants to connect with new technology for fraud or different technology or, or added layers or using it in a different way, using their current vendor in a different way, providing more data, et cetera, without any internal engineering resources. So it's something that I think the industry has needed for a long time. It's a common complaint among uh, merchant fraud fighters that yeah, it's great that there's all this great technology, but it's really hard. Even if I want, even if I identify the type of technology I want to add, it can take months to get it approved, then implemented, et cetera. Anyone on the provider side has lived this uh, multiple times over, but it, I think it would be good for you to hear from Nate's perspective too of what worked and what didn't work. If you haven't listened to that conversation and in interview with Nate Carl, the CEO of Spectrust, I highly recommend it. But today I wanted to share some of the really fascinating case studies that I recently learned about. So in the last couple of weeks, I have been able to facilitate a few different merchant collaboration calls more than usual. So I always have my biweekly retailer call and the biweekly ticketing event and travel call that we started. I started both of them, I think, in the first week or two of COVID starting, and they just have continued. But in addition to that, once a month, I host a merchant collaboration call for cardnotpresent.com. And that's open to any merchants that are accept payments online from their customers, whether that's B2B or B2C. Also, I hosted a private executive roundtable or focus group for one of my solution provider clients who wanted to provide an opportunity for their current clients and their prospective clients in a specific vertical to talk to each other and share information. Uh, this provider had noticed that they're all kind of experiencing similar things. So wouldn't it be good for them to be able to talk to each other? Whether that's about how to utilize that product better or just everyday challenges. If you had a chance to be in a room, even if it was a Zoom room, with some of the companies that are experiencing the same things as you are, what would you ask them? And that is honestly how I start. That call was very insightful. I really appreciated everyone that was involved. I think there's a lot less pressure in those smaller environments. And when there's trust in the room, whether that's trust with the provider, trust with me, trust with your peers, or all of the above, uh, a lot of really interesting information gets. So while I will not be sharing the specific company names of the case studies, there is one company name I will share because the example is public and has been in the headlines for a while, but the rest um, are all private. Just know that they are enterprise e-commerce or marketplace or fintech companies, brands that you probably will recognize so that you can use that as a data point internally if you want to use any of the new information that they gleaned from doing a few tests and, and studies and other data, as well as one was an A-B test of handling something in a different way. I think that this information is going to help those of you who are leaders in fraud prevention and trust and safety be able to apply some new perspectives and have a new mindset around fraud in a way. Learning some of these examples in the last couple of weeks has actually helped improve my perspective on managing fraud, especially in this current environment with how online consumers are getting more savvy and understanding how things work online, so to speak. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit a lot about the price of trust in the industry or the cost of trust in the industry. We know that a lot of digital first companies have renamed their fraud team to trust and safety and that often they have a lot of other responsibilities besides preventing payment fraud. But then there's the companies that were maybe traditional retail or had 
a brick and mortar component or even quick service restaurants, right? Those kind of companies that maybe are digital second or digital third, they're a little bit slower to that game and it's more about fraud prevention. But no matter what your com- your department is called, more and more the trust of our customers are needs to be considered in all of our fraud prevention processes and policies and messaging to customers and the technology selected, all of that. I talked a little bit about this on the MRC debrief solo episode uh, because I was really impressed by the presentation by Emily and Rosa at Google about building empathy into your customer journey. And this is similar. It's on a similar note, but it's just, I think it's important, you know, that we all be in touch with each other. And this is one way I can use this platform to share, hey, this is what this company and this company, not that I'm going to say which ones, but these are what some of your peers are doing. This is what they've learned in this. This is how you can replicate it within your company, as well as how you know, you could maybe use that to advocate to leadership within your company. So with that, I'm going to actually start with a, I don't want to say a negative, but what can happen if to customer trust if you're not proactive about it? So that's, you know, where I'll start. But first, I just had a couple notes I wrote out that I thought I'd share. So while there are several ways CMP companies can build trust with their users, a high amount of trust is either built or lost by how your company handles fraud and abuse. In reality, I know that not all of the ways a company handles fraud is within the control of the fraud department. Whether it's because processes have been overwritten or vetoed, There's no little leadership or support championship within your company for fraud prevention, or there's limited budget. I should say and or there are limited budgets. So oftentimes I've heard people say, why can't this company should be doing X, Y, Z? And a lot of times it's people who haven't been in e-commerce fraud or marketplace fraud. And I will say, you're absolutely right. The fraud department ran this company. It will their fraud would be handled much differently. However, if the majority of say goes to the business and then it's our job as fraud prevention to work around that and try to align fraud goals with company goals, as well as focus more on the good customer than the bad customer while protecting your company from the bad customer. So just a lot more balancing these days. Back at the beginning of fraud fighting, we would just cancel whatever looks suspicious and that was fine because chargebacks were high, but now that margins are thinner and everything else. It's just more important than ever to be more laser and surgically precision with fraud fighting rather than casting a white net. But more and more, I've heard about ways companies have prioritized increasing user trust by improving and optimizing their approach on fraud. And not only have these efforts resulted in reduced fraud and money loss, but also increased sales. And in some cases, it's been a lot of increased sales. I've been pretty surprised actually. And sometimes with fraud fighting, there needs to be some customer communications, whether it's about best practices or, hey, your account looks like somebody else opened it, or there's a need for multi-factor authentication, or you need to update your credit card or things like that messaging wise. And a lot of times, especially, I hate to use the term old school because what, that's 20 years ago. In e-commerce, 20 years ago is old school. I think there have been, or there have been a lot of communications departments within e-commerce and marketplaces and some fintechs that really try to stay away from ever admitting they have a fraud department, ever admitting that can be fraud on their website, because they feel like that may lose trust. But Fraud and security are very different. Keeping your customer's data protected is, of course, important. And I don't think it's as important to say, hey, this is what we're doing to protect your data or protect our servers to customers as it is to say, hey, this is how we're protecting your money and your account and the any of the stored value that you have within your account within our company, whether that's loyalty miles or points, credits, et cetera. There's a difference there, but I know a lot of communication teams shy away from that. Sometimes they won't even let their anti-fraud leaders speak at conferences or in publications or on this podcast, but there are some that will. And I appreciate it. And I always play ball with merchant communications teams as far as providing them with questions up front. And if they want to listen to the recording first and all of that, because I know that it's a gift to have merchants be able to speak. But And for those of us that have been fighting fraud for 10 years, like I mentioned a minute ago, or even some of you who are trained by someone that lived through those days of kind of hand-to-hand combat before a lot of technology we rely on now was available, 
Sometimes we can get so micro-focused on preventing fraud, whether it's payment fraud, abuse, friendly fraud, first-party fraud, account takeovers, etc., that the good customers are an afterthought, or at least they're the second or third priority, both in developing and notifying and modifying processes and technology, but also in the day-to-day decisions that need to be made. For example, in manual review, when you've done all that you can and you still don't know whether that order is fraud or not, do you default to cancel the order or do you default to approve the order? Or do you have a second look or do you have a way to provide a little bit more step up authentication? Those are all things to think about. I think that, again, I'm just saying all this as a preamble because I think that some of the mindset around fraud fighting is really important. I did a whole speech or I still have a presentation that I do at some conferences when it's asked for about how fighting fraud is a lot of companies approach it like fighting a dragon. But really fighting fraud, online fraud especially, is like fighting zombies. They continually regenerate and adapt to your current tools. They're not going to go away. They're not one and done. You can't use the same tools over and over again like you can with a dragon. There's You have to prepare not just for the type of zombie or type of fraud you're seeing now, but the type that you will see in two, three, four years as these holes over here get plugged, then they're going to find other holes over there, so to speak. So just all things to think about. So my hope is that with real life examples from well-known brands, that it might help you make a case internally for better processes, more thoughtful customer experiences, building more trust in your environment, because that trust, as I'm going to share soon, can equate to a lot of money. And the companies that are getting this right are doing so well. And especially with this recession, I think it's really important to think about. And I know you guys are going to have to take what works and what won't work for your company out of these examples. But I think within the recession, it's important to look for ways that your company can show value And honestly, trust is a currency and people do business with other people and companies that they like and trust. So that is why I'm going to, I don't know. Hopefully you're not playing a drinking game with the word trust on this episode because you're not going to be able to hear the rest of the examples if you are. I've also seen firsthand what can happen when a company loses their customer trust. And I thought that I would start with kind of the stick approach. I don't know if any of that, especially internationally, but in parenting books, I don't know, it probably started in the 80s or something like that. This metaphor that in order to train your children or discipline them or encourage better behavior, you can either use the carrot or the stick. The stick is a consequence. The carrot is a, not a bribe, an incentive. In this case, this is if you need a real world example for your company of what can happen if you're not prioritizing trust, if you haven't thought this through ahead of time before there is an attack, that type of thing. This is one example that you can provide and it's a cautionary tale. I'm going to say the company and the only reason for that is because it's been in headlines um, this, and these headlines are also like a year and a half old, but the consequences of them, actually some of those consequences of those decisions from a year and a half ago and those headlines from a year and a half ago just occurred last week. I may know a few more details about this company culture around risk and other specifics around this time and others. But for this example, I'm only going to talk about what's public and what's out there. And I also want to say, I you guys can tell I don't usually say company names, just like I kind of like had to explain why I was talking about Uber's fraud a couple weeks ago. But I just... Again, trust is so important to me. I need you guys to continue to trust me that when I break a rule or bend a rule that I have for this podcast, I want to make it super clear that I was thoughtful about it. I'm thinking about it a lot before I say anything so that you can continue to trust me. Before I say the company name, I want the people who work and or did work there um, on their fraud team and who've listened to Fraudology, because I know there are some of you, to know that I'm in no way shaming you or the fraud team at all. I know that especially in the last couple of years, you've had to work three times as hard as most startup fraud teams in several cases because of bigger decisions and direction that was made at the top. Again, The fraud department doesn't always have as much of a say as we may think from the outside. And also when a startup is like a rocket ship and growing so fast, I experienced this once in my career too. There's not a lot of time to be able to do anything in advance. You don't even have time or even think that a problem is going to happen in advance. It's just, oh, hey, this problem started a week ago and you have two days to fix it. I really just want to stress I'm not blaming the fraud team. I know there were a lot of things at play. But I think this is a really good example for people who can use it. So the company I'm referring to is Robinhood. 
About a year ago, several articles were published about their high volume of account take. The customers said that they've been hacked. We've heard this before. Any company that has logins and accounts has the threat and attempts of account takeover. And not all attempts are identified, but what made headlines was the lack of communication to the customer over a span of weeks about their account. Once the customer found out their account was compromised, they would email or try to call customer service. And because customer service and the fraud team were so busy and just so buried and drowning in account takeovers that they had to research, they weren't able to get back to them right away. It was really hard for those customers. And more importantly, what customers didn't know what would happen to their investments or their account balances if they'd be made hold, if the company would take any action, they would reach out and make the report, but they wouldn't hear back for a couple of weeks. And that's why it ended up on headlines. Whenever there's ambiguity and your customers don't know that you're on top of something or that you're aware of something or what's going to happen if there's not continued messaging, whether that's after you've shipped a package or if a package is going to be late, whether that's account takeover, et cetera, they're going to obsess over it and they're going to get louder and louder until they're heard. It's just human nature. But also in these cases, these were people's hard-earned money in their account. And sometimes they had an investment, right? I don't have to tell you this, but as a consumer, if I don't know what's going on, or even if my report will be taken seriously, that uncertainty is frustrating. And it's really turns into this impossible game of catch up internally in the company. And because of the high volume of attacks at one time, they were in reactive mode and it's completely understandable. There were also some internal systems that were very time consuming and manual to perform research on each account activity, especially if it had been days or weeks since the time of compromise. Did get to play a small part in that Robinhood identifying the specific vulnerability within their, I mean, it was really a vulnerability. It was actually, I helped them identify how these attackers were getting in. It wasn't necessarily a vulnerability on their part. It was a opportunity that fraudsters found in order enable to get account takeovers. And there were other factors at play as well, but not going into all. But I am not saying that out of ego. I'm saying that out of pride. I was really glad that I could connect them with uh, some very smart people that knew what was going on and had insight into the dark web as to what was being said and talked about and was able to lead to some pretty significant changes where they were at least able to turn the faucet way off. If you're thinking of account takeover just coming through a faucet at full blast, they were able to turn it way back. And so I'm proud of that. And I don't always get to say what I'm proud of. I'm working on that, but I also don't always get to say that because I keep so many things confidential. But if a customer's account at a retailer is taken over, it's it's not good and it can have repercussions, but it's a whole new set of circumstances if their hard-earned money is stolen out of their account. Add the complexity of investments and there could be cases where this, uh, the specific shares in their account would be worth more had they stayed in the account during the time between an account compromise and when it was being investigated and restored to the user. So, you know, just for example, right, if there's stock prices that are at $10 when your account is taken over and maybe the fraudster sells them or transfers them to another account or whatever they do with them. But then by the time you've notified the company, they've researched it, they've said, okay, yep, you're right. Your account was taken over. We'll make you whole. What if that stock price was $20 now? Does that mean that the company is going to make up the difference or it's just out of luck? Like all those things had to be th thought about. Similarly to when I talked to Matt Vega at Candy Digital about NFT fraud, there's just so many other things that have to be thought about. It's not the same as having an account where you just do payment transactions. You had stored value in that account that could have a lot of value, both to the user as well as to the fraudsters and the bad actors. So the severity of this attack combined with the reactive process and long SLA to restore the account communicated to the user resulted in a lot of lost trust. Before there were articles about it, users were flocking to Reddit and Twitter to try to get answers, reassurances, and or attention from the company. They told anyone in real life that they could because they were scared and mad and uncertain. And in the fog of war of this attack, and possibly because the communications team, you know, chose not to greenlight communication to these users, like I mentioned, that can sometimes they don't want to say the word fraud or don't want to admit fault. And I understand that thought, but consumers have moved 
far past that. They chose not to green light communication to these users. So the users got loud. And so then they lost the trust of the user whose accounts were taken over and of the people who heard or read about it because it wasn't contained. And users didn't know if they would get their accounts back and their money back. So they reached out to journalists that covered this quite a bit over the span of a, a few weeks. So this past week, Robinhood had to lay off 9% of their workforce. It's never a good thing when layoffs happen. I was very disappointed for them that, well, just, I, I think maybe there was a reactionary piece where they hired a lot of people in fraud and anti-money laundering after this attack. And now some of those positions have been eliminated. I only know of the people in those departments that have been eliminated because that's who I'm connected with on LinkedIn and just in life. So uh, it could be in other departments. I'm sure it is across all departments, but just I do know that has been a challenge to people. And there were other factors associated with the reduced stock prices and the decrease in active users. And then as a result, the layoffs of 9% of their workforce. There were other factors for sure beyond this account takeover, but the ATOs certainly didn't improve their customer acquisitions and long-term engagement of users. So I'm using that as a real life example of what can happen if you don't think about those things. And sometimes you don't have the luxury of sitting down and saying, okay, what if we have a big ATO attack? Or what if we even just have, you know, a few ATOs here and there? How are we going to handle that? What's the process going to be? What do we want to message to our users, uh, how do we, all of those pieces. Sometimes you don't have that luxury to do that. So totally understand. Sometimes I'm brought in when there's a big attack and okay, what do we do? And I always prioritize messaging to the customer, mostly because of my chargeback background and messaging to customers is what can really help you if you do receive a chargeback to be able to say, hey, we were in communication with them. You know, we told them that shipment was gonna be late or whatever it was. So part of it's that, but also just, I think I always put myself in customer's shoes and I would want to know something at least to the extent of we got notice, you know, we really apologize for any inconvenience. We want to make sure that we investigate this and look at what happened. One, currently our SLA is X. I think at one point it was in weeks, but we will get back to you as soon as possible. Or, but for now your account's been suspended. Like anything like that would have been, I think could have been more proactive, but because nothing was done or said, it just kept escalating like a wildfire. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Okay, so now for on some positive examples, this is going to be a little bit longer of a solo episode than I usually do, but I think you're going to want to hear these especially, so I'm just going to try to run with it. The first one is a merchant whose users were experiencing account takeovers and team had a hard time getting resources from the rest of their business, which happens a lot, especially if it's a new attack. A lot of companies 
don't fully understand the differences and nuances between different fraud attacks. They don't understand what this means. This company had to take a different approach. They tried to request for resources. They tried to, you know, not be chicken little, but to say, hey, there's a big problem here. We're worried about this. But because a lot of their account takeovers that they identified didn't result in financial loss, it was hard for the business to understand the importance of preventing these from ever happening in the first place. Understandable, it's business. All of technology and business runs on ROI. So if it's hard for you to explain the return on investment or the risk, if you weren't to do that, then it can be really challenging. They worked on building a business case and they did it in most of the usual ways that you would know about. But there was one piece that I found really interesting. So in addition to measuring the dollar amount lost in fraud due to ATOs and the number of accounts impacted and all of that, they also looked at any impact on account and that an account takeover event may have on a customer. And one way that they measured that was on their lifetime spend. So sometimes that's LTV is pretty common acronym, lifetime value. When the customer gets their account back and they know that somebody had access to it, do they just resume their spending with us or does it go up or does it go down? So they measured their customer annual spend prior to the ATO. So they would look at a sample set of accounts that were taken over and then restored and given back to the consumer or the, the true user. And they looked at how much money that person spent a year before their account was ever taken over or compromised. So say that I on average spend, I don't know, $1,000 a year at this merchant. They'd measure how much, you know, user would spend in a year or, you know, yearly on average if they've been a user for several years. And then if a customer had their account taken over, whether it was monetized or not, so whether their card on file was used or not, they found by measuring how much they were spending a year after the account takeover happened. I really wish this was like an interactive audience so I could be like, what do you think? Like, what's the over under? Because I was surprised about this. Whether the card on file was used or not, if the customer knew that the account had been taken over and then they got it restored and back to them, on average, their annual spend went down over 50%. I do know the exact number, but I'm not sharing it. Um, I was asked not to, but it was over 50%. So that is a way to explain to your business that loss of trust equals loss of money. 110%. And if you put yourself in the customer's shoes, I think that it makes perfect sense, right? That doesn't mean that account takeovers can't ever happen. I mean, I hope there comes a day, but they're getting more and more sophisticated and harder. And that's a whole other conversation. But it is important to work to prevent as many as you possibly can. And then when they do happen, work overtime to rebuild that trust with that user. Using this kind of information, you could do things like offer, you know, a discount code for the inconvenience, or you could send out a letter from the CEO apologizing, even though legal and comms probably wouldn't approve that as I say that out loud, but you know, different things like that. Another example that's similar. So another merchant was also struggling with quantifying the cost to the business of their account takeovers, just in general, actually account takeovers and card fraud. So they looked at a, a few other things. First, they quantified the activity on an account takeover, right? Or like after the account takeover happened, what is the person, what is the user doing? What is the bad actor doing when they get the account? In this case, a strong majority of account takeovers never were monetized or anything. It was really just peeking around the account, looking to see if they had account credits or loyalty points or anything of value, stored value in that account. And then oftentimes they'd log out pretty quickly. A lot of times it was bought activity just very quick. Uh, then maybe a couple months later, if the merchant didn't catch that compromise on a different device the first time, then someone else is going to go in and monetize that because a lot of bad actors that are checking the password, username and password works for that login. Uh, they're doing that to package them all up and sell those logins in bulk. So uh, this merchant realized in looking at all that, that, wow, we have an opportunity to stop actually two thirds of all account takeover attempts from ever monetizing because most of them are checking in first and then they'll create damage later. So as long as we can identify that first one, we can put a little bit extra security on there to try to make sure that only the legitimate user has access, whether that's by the device, a password reset, multi-factor authentication, uh, stronger identity verification, all of those things are possible there. Again, like over two thirds of their account ATO attempts never led to a fraud purchase. So if they were just looking at the dollars, it would be like, yeah, that's not that much. 
But if you start to look at, okay, well, all these accounts were accessed and they're going to be sold eventually, so we need to prevent it. But they also added even more cost to the account takeover. So they looked at it in a different way. I really think they should combine information used from the last merchant with what they learned here. But they, in addition to like a reduction in spend, they also added up their company's CAC, the customer acquisition costs, the average spend for each customer, et cetera, for both the ATO'd accounts, as well as all fraudulent new accounts. And this gave them a bigger dollar amount to assign to these fraud problems to try to get better budget or bigger, better budget, better technology, new processes internally and operational processes. Not everything can be fixed with technology. I'm a process girl first, then adding technology, but that's just my way of doing things. It also conveyed the bigger picture of the impact of online fraud on their business and their bottom line, in addition to chargebacks. And that helped with a really good conversation internally within their company about, hey, it's our job to protect our customers and we can do it this way. And it's so much better to identify it when they're just checking this username and password work rather than not doing anything and waiting until the account has been compromised and drained and everything else. As we know, just from a few minutes ago, that can result in a lot of lost revenue. Lost trust equals lost revenue. Increased trust equals increased revenue. It's just that it more and more and there's a lot to be said about consumer attitude and consumer issues. I think crypto has a huge impact on this, but a whole other conversation and a whole other tangent. But I do think that customers are starting to realize, ooh, we have a part in our safety too. And I think that's very important. But they're never going to take 100% responsibility. Geography has something to play with, has a part to play in this. Obviously, consumers in the UK and EU are completely fine with added what we would call friction in the U.S. added authentication through PSD2, 3DS.2, SCA, etc. But also I think there's more consumers in the U.S. that are starting to. And again, I think crypto is part of it because if a customer has lost any money to crypto, almost always there's no way for them to get it back. So I think that's training them, unfortunately, the hard way that they do need to take some accountability and responsibility in their safety and security online. Not all of it, but some. So another example of trust equals currency in e-commerce fraud, and this is something I learned just this past week and really had to share it here. It's an internal study. I have tried to anonymize anything that would make turn it back to the company because this was shared with me in trust, but I do think that this example is mind-blowing and is the best out of all these examples. So a large company had a huge account takeover attack several months ago across the company. It was internationally. The business is global and run by two different teams, one on one side of the world, one on the other. Now they each chose to handle the account differently than the other team, which ended up providing a really insightful comparison within the same company. So that means they have similar user types, similar average tickets, similar everything. It's just they handled the account takeovers differently. So the first fraud team implemented more friction. They basically did what a lot of us in fraud prevention, especially those of us that have been around for more than 10 years. This is a lot of, I think, what our go-to would be. I'm not going to say that all of this would be my go-to, but this method of thought, like what can we put in place to protect our customers and reduce our account takeovers. So they implemented more what a lot of people would consider friction, multi-factor authentication, forced passet reset or password resets, identity document verification in some cases. They threw um, multiple fraud tools at the problem without any extra explanation to their users. It was all behind the scenes or they would ask their user for something in the moment. So if their customer, their user is signing in, and they want to make sure it's the user and not someone else that might have had access to the account, they're going to say, hey, we sent six-digit code to your text messages via SMS. Please, you know, put it back or whatever they're, they chose. So a lot of it was behind the scenes, but some of it was up front. And that was fine and good. And, and that was how that's how I would usually solve a problem is with fraud tools, thinking of the fraud piece first rather than the customers first. However, the second team put more of an emphasis on customer education. They didn't just provide best practices. They told them why. This is something I've been big on about how the media covers data breaches and credit card fraud and everything else. They don't always say the why. Uh, and that's why you're not going to get people to change their behaviors, especially their habits that are easy and more convenient than some of the general safety uh, structures around different passwords, etc. So one example of this 
is they would send out communication and say, you know, you might use the same password on multiple accounts. Here's why that could be bad. You know, other actors that could be revealed in a data breach of some sort. And so then bad actors will use it there, et cetera. I will say that credential stuffing isn't the number one reason for account takeovers anymore. I've mentioned this before. It's definitely malware, especially since the end of February. When I talked about the online fraud as a state in a state of emergency, I mentioned that account takeovers were, you know, skyrocketing since the end of February and often in the same MO that we see from Russian bad actors. One merchant told me last week that their account takeover attempts, just attempts, not successful, but their attempts went up 8,000% the last week of February. I know it's bad. I didn't realize it was that bad, <laughs> like 800 times what they usually have. So definitely account takeovers should be piece of, or top of mind to you, especially if you have access to any kind of digital currency, e-gift cards, crypto, you've got customers with credit in their account, whether again, those are points, or if you're a marketplace and you have seller accounts, they probably have money in there that they may not have transferred out because from something that they sold on your platform, there's just a lot to consider, but those need to be thought of. So anyway, they, so in addition to saying like, you know, suggest that you have unique passwords for each account that you have, you know, we suggest you can use an, a password manager. Here's some other thing you can do. Or instead of forcing multi-factor authentication when they needed it, they explained what it was and why it was important. And they gave them an opt-in option before that happened. There's just so many pieces of it that they really thought out. And to be super honest with you guys, if you would have given me those two scenarios, I would have told you that the one that was more effective in reducing account takeovers and just going back to business as usual would be option one, tackling it from the fraud perspective. I am huge on customer education. I also know from 10 years ago, eight, 10 years ago, that there were several gaming companies that tried to reduce account takeovers by forcing password resets. And one of them required them to not have the same password up to 10 times. So they had to have a different password than they had for the last 10 passwords. And a strong percentage of them at that time went in and changed their password 10 times and then went back to the original password. That was where we were 10 years ago. I think account takeovers have been happening so much and there's just other news and information and, and consumers that shop online consistently are starting to get a little more savvy and understanding their part in this. So I think that's part of it, but did not, I, I completely underestimated the impact of the second option. So when they compared these two approaches, one where the customer may feel forced into a trust or fraud prevention solution or technology or approach versus educating the customer on best practices and supporting them throughout the process, making adding security easy, giving them instructions on how to sign up for multi-factor authentication, telling them about password managers, et cetera, and giving them that extra step. So making it easier for them. Again, I really wish I could ask you guys what you thought, but what they found was with the group of customers that uh, were forced into these actions of multi-factor, you know, identity document verification, et cetera, they were less active once their account accounts were restored. A lot of them dropped off and there was a lot of lost revenue from that. Similarly to the first example, right? When accounts are taken over, that can mean a reduction of more than 50% of your revenue. But for the team in the geographical area that chose to take a more educational approach while still having all those technologies available, but it was the difference between fishing for them and teaching them how to fish. They saw a 10x in sales revenue compared to the other group. Isn't that insane? 10 more, 10 times more sales in those uh, accounts months after their account was restored than in the accounts where the fraud prevention was done for them and they weren't explained to and they there wasn't as much transparency. I thought that was absolutely insane. They were also more active and engaged. They found that their users logged in more than they ever had before. They, they felt safer to be able to, e even though the result was the same, because the customer understood what was done to secure their account and they took part in it, they felt safer. They felt safer logging into that account. They felt safer working with that company because they knew that company would communicate to them if there was a problem. They saw that that company was being proactive rather than reactive. 
they were getting ahead of it. They were explaining, hey, you know what? This happened. We've done everything we can not to have it happen, but it has. Here's how you can protect yourself, whether your account has already been taken over or to prevent that takeover. I thought that example was absolutely mind-blowing. So in wrapping up this longer than usual episode, this is where we as fraud fighters need leading our companies to making a different change, to thinking about building that customer trust in every way that you message to them and mapping out that customer journey. Like I said, the Google presentation, if your company is an MRC member, I highly recommend looking to see if the slide deck from the presentation by two members of Google's trust and safety team from MRC Vegas 2022 is available. I haven't asked the organization if it is. I know they try to make as many slide decks a public, well, to the membership only that they can, but that is an opt-in from the speakers. So I don't know if that's possible, but they did such a good job mapping out end to end of the customer journey and looking at every little problem that could happen and how they're going to message them, how it's going to, they're going to implement empathy in there, how they're going to build some trust by educating them a little bit more transparency. Really all customers need to know is I've got you. And if something happens to your account, we've got you then too. That's really what they need to know to have the freedom to continue to interact with your app or your website to spend more money. It's the same kind of thing that goes into retailers that have a generous return policy, right? Consumers are going to spend more money if they know that they can return items in an easier way than if there's a strict return policy. There's always going to be higher per ticket as well as lifetime value on those retailers that have more of a generous or understandable return policy. That doesn't mean that they're not, they can't get taken advantage of and they do, but that's just, this is on a similar note, right? It's whenever a customer feels like, okay, they've got me there. You know, I can trust spending more money with them because I know if something happens, they're going to take care of it. And I know that several comms teams are terrified of this, but I think I know there is a way. There are some really good websites and companies that are doing this in a good way and messaging that at some point, I don't know if I'm going to put them together or what, but I think they're helpful to know because a lot of times people say, what language should we use? How should we do it? There's a few, there's a whole science and study on that too. But I think that it is important to implement more current technology um, for verification and authentication behind the scenes at the time of login, whether that's behavior biometrics of some, a product that provides you with a trusted device score with all kinds of information on the background or uh, a different identity product. There's also a network of merchant data that's anonymous that has been successful at the login as well. So you're trying to keep as many of these you know, bad actors out of your system in the first place. That's such a good step. Also, it's important to measure the bigger picture of impact of fraud prevention, whether that's in a positive or a negative. If we put this in place, is our spend going to go down? If we don't put this in place, is our spend going to go up and vice versa? And it's important always, it's always important to build a strong business case internally. It's hard to do. There are some episodes of the podcast where we talk about that. I plan to continue to talk about that more and bring in some awesome merchant interviews, merchant fraud fighters that have done this in a good way. One of them was with Diana. I had a really good conversation with her about demonstrating the value of a fraud team. I don't even remember what it was. I think it was a couple of months ago. Uh, I wish I had the episode number offhand, but guys, we're almost to episode number 100. So I cannot remember them all. But when there are impacts to your customers, when you can't prevent all of it up front, get ahead of it as much as possible. Communicate enough that they feel confident that you're taking their security and their account seriously. And that you, that's another way to show them that you honor and value them being a user of your company. And they know that if it is a account takeover situation, that your company will do whatever you can to make them whole, to replace what was taken out of their account. Or obviously, if a transaction happened on the card on file, chargeback or a refund. Refund if you want to prevent the chargeback. Educate with them with how they can protect themselves and why. The why is so big. This changes the customer negative from what happened. Do they know it happened? What are they going to do about it? To, I'm not happy about it, but I know they're going to take care of it and it's okay. Once it's all taken care of and you have your account back, how quickly are you going to say, oh, you know what? I want to buy something from them again. Or are you going to go, oh, I'll go to their competitor because I didn't feel safe or I don't need that as much as I thought. A couple caveats. I understand this can happen to any company online having a high ATO attack and all of that. 
but there are things that can be put into place to prevent this from happening again. And by being honest and transparent as a customer, I feel like then I can trust them with more of my data and more of my money. So not all customers will do this willingly. I don't mean to pay a Susie Sunshine, you know, at all. Like in that last example, while the customers who listened to the education and implemented those changes, their spend went up. But there's always going to be a percentage of customers who ignore them or don't do it. And so it can be important to use a hybrid approach between those two uh, scenarios. But I think it's just something that we don't always think about is what happens after they get their account back. Are they just going to go back to spending all the same amounts and buying the same things they used to, or are they going to hold back because they're nervous? And the way that the anecdote to that is really sunlight and transparency and more information. So this can go on even longer, but I'm going to end it here for now. It's my hope that these lessons and examples that other big retailers have done can help you think of how these lessons can be applied to your company or how you can measure this in an unique way that can also lead to explaining this to the company. That's the other piece that's important is once you do one of these tests internally and you're looking at things like that, it's so important to share it back within your company to share with them, hey, we proactively did this and this is what we learned. So based on that, we're going to change our approach a little bit or we'd like to change our approach a little bit and we'd like the buy-in of our comms team, our legal team, our customer service team, whoever it is, or all of the above. Maybe it's important to form a task force. There's so many ways to do this because the specifics vary in each company, but the lessons that are learned can be applied broadly. We also just, it, this helped me learn that we need to keep evolving our focus as fraud fighters. And as the subject matter expert on fraud within your company, consumers are that, take that job seriously, right? Like help evolve your focus and that mindset from just about fighting fraud and protecting your company's bottom line to helping your good customers spend quickly and effectively and efficiently and love the process and also to feel like they can trust your company if something goes wrong. That should also be our jobs in fraud prevention. That's why I, I've said a few times, I think we should call our teams like revenue protection instead of fraud prevention. It just has more of a positive spin on it. And it's broader, which more and more the lines are getting blurred between all these different fraud types. And as Shoshana said on my interview with Shoshana and Galit about their book that just recently came out, fraudsters don't have categories. They just have tools and tactics. So that's why the lines are blurring, because they're realizing that they maybe can't commit payment fraud, but they can leverage this system and that system and do this and that. All of that is important. Consumers are choosing to spend their money with companies that they like and trust, and it's not enough to just focus on stopping fraud. We need to look at the entire user journey on your site, or you need to look at the entire user journey on your site and look for opportunities to build trust while also preventing fraud. Like I said, this was like twice the amount of time that I usually would do on a solo episode, but I think and I hope that this is really helpful for you guys. If you like this format, as far as hearing anonymous examples of things that merchants have learned on a specific topic, let me know. I think I, I have a brain full of a lot of anecdotes and a lot of examples. These just happen to be ones and I started to just see this theme between the headlines about Robin Hood to the conversations in my merchant collaboration calls. It was just all around trust and the importance about it and what happens if you lose it and how do you gain it? So with that, I am going to end this episode today. We have another really interesting and fun conversation for you on next Tuesday's episode. And I will talk to you soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.